Well, good morning. Give you a welcome in the name of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And let me, um, and I'd like to welcome everyone who's following us along on live stream. Um, first announcement if you came in and they tell you you don't have a bulletin, we're printing bulletins at this very moment. And uh, when they come out, we'll, um, somebody will probably quietly be walking around and you just raise your hand and they will get you uh, a bulletin because you'll need it uh, to sing along. Uh, with our hymns. Now, uh, this is uh, Palm Sunday, and um, meaning the beginning of Holy Week, and let me remind you of uh, two events taking place. Thursday night at 6 o'clock, we will have our cantata, and you're, of course, all invited to come. And then on Good Friday, we will have our annual Good Friday service at noontime. And so I encourage you to come. And then, of course, uh, for Easter, and we'll have the same two services that we normally have or have been having uh, for Easter. And uh, by the way, I see, I see bulletins coming. And just kind of hold your hand up because right now they're looking to see who to bring bulletins to. And with that in mind, then, let's uh, prepare our hearts for worship.
We're called to worship. Let me read of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And we join with these crowds uh, that sang to our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you and praise you that our Lord Jesus came, that he knew the reason he was walking through those gates, to be our great king, to win victory for us on the cross. And we pray, our Father, that you would take delight in this worship we bring to you in the name of Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit, in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and sing together, all glory, laud, and honor. to the Lord and pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We give you praise, our Father who art in heaven, that you, for your love for the world, have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. And by taking on our very flesh, he lived upon this earth, he ministered and taught and and performed mighty miracles. But we give you praise on this day that he walked through those gates of Jerusalem, there knowing that he is our king, that as our king he would perform that great work of our deliverance upon the cross. And we give you praise. We say Hosanna to the Son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for his kingdom to come, for his return, for his return in his flesh, in all of his glory, when he will consummate his kingdom. And may we be found faithful to him in service to him, whether he returns while we are still here, whether you call us uh, to, our, uh, to heaven, whatever may be the case, that we will be faithful in the service of our king here upon this earth, that we will do the will of our king on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray that you would give to us that bread that we need to serve our king well, that you would feed us with your word, that you will feed us with the gospel, feed us this morning with the very worship that we offer to you. And we pray that we will honor you in this worship. We pray, our Father, that you will forgive our debts that are many, our debts in which we have failed to love you with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength, that debt in which we have failed to love our neighbors ourselves. Indeed, we have been guilty of counting more of the debts that our neighbors owe us. We pray that we would have the heart of our Father who is merciful, who would make a great sacrifice to forgive whatever debts may be owed to us. We pray that we not be led into temptation. You know the weaknesses of our flesh. We pray that you would deliver us from the evil one, Make this prayer acknowledging that to you belongs the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. In Christ's name, amen.
Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Lord, we lift up your name. His heart's full of praise. Exalted, O Lord, my God, Hosanna in the highest. To the King of Kings, glory, glory, glory to the King of Kings. Lord, we lift up Your name with hearts full of praise. Be exalted, O Lord, my God. Hosanna in the King of Kings. Lord, we lift up your name. With hearts full of praise, be exalted, O Lord my God. Hosanna in the King of to um, ordain and install new deacons of our church, and I'm going to ask them if they would uh, come up. I'll call their names. Uh, Ken Johnson, Bill Benzer. Bill, will somebody come up? Uh, Bill Benzer, Bill Burmeister, Ron Dickerson, Brent Johansson, Paul Sklefcombe. While they're coming up, I want to uh, take time to recognize and thank um, a good number of deacons who will be uh, stepping down. Uh, one has already moved away, that was Arn Dittmar, but also uh, Bill Bonner, Fred Harris, Doug Attaway, Lincoln Balfay, Bobby Craig, and uh, Charlie Walker. That's a lot uh, to lose, and uh, these have been uh, wonderful uh, servants who have not only did their term, but added uh, another four or five months uh, to that uh, because of our special case with COVID, and we, we thank them for their service. Now, the office of deacon in a, a Presbyterian church, um, for those of you Baptists, we have elders uh, in our church who are the shepherds of our church and watch over the spiritual welfare, and then we have the deacons of our church and their office, as described in our book of church order, is one of sympathy and service after the example of the Lord Jesus. It is the duty of the deacons to minister to those who are in need, to the sick, to the friendless, and to any who may be in distress. 
And I'm going to ask uh, now, many of you would uh, turn towards me as I um, ask you the following questions. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, as originally given, to be the inerrant word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice, do you? Do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and the catechisms of this church as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures? And do you further promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with any of the fundamentals of this system of doctrine, you will on your own initiative make known to your session the change which has taken place in your views since the assumption of this ordination of vow, do you? Do you approve of the form of government and discipline of the Presbyterian Church in America in conformity with the general principles of biblical polity, do you? Do you accept the office of deacon in this church and promise faithfully to perform all the duties thereof and to endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your life and to set a worthy example before the church of which God has made you an officer to you? Do you promise subjection to your brethren in the Lord? Do you promise to strive for the purity, peace, unity, and edification of the church? Do you? And to the members of the church, do you, the members of Lekakoni Presbyterian Church, acknowledge and receive these brothers as deacons? And do you promise to yield them all that honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord, to which their office, according to the word of God and the constitution of this church, entitles them? If so, then raise your right hands. Thank you. I'm going to now call the elders to come forward for the laying on of hands uh, of the men who are being ordained. Uh, Kent Johnson is already a deacon of this church, already ordained, and the other men will now be ordained. everyone in place. Let's, um, we're going to pray and I will ask uh, the elders, I'm going to ask the deacons who are to be ordained if you will now kneel and the elders will lay your hands uh, upon the deacons as I pray. He's an already ordained deacon. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we uh, give you praise and thanksgiving for your church, of which the head is our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that our Lord has established the church here upon this earth to represent him and to serve him. Thank you uh, for uh, raising uh, the office of deacons for this vital ministry to represent our Lord Jesus Christ, who himself is the supreme servant. Thank you for these men whom you have given the gifts and the spirit 
and the wisdom and the desire and heart to serve your church. We pray now for the anointing of your Holy Spirit to be upon them, to give them the gifts that are needed, to give them uh, that mantle of your Holy Spirit to empower them so that your church may be well served, that our Lord Jesus Christ may be honored, that our God may be glorified. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, Diggins, you may now stand. I now pronounce and declare that Ken Johnson has been elected and reinstalled as deacon, and that Bill Benzer, Bill Burmeister, Ron Dickerson, Brent Johansson, and Paul Schlefcombe have been elected, ordained, and installed as deacon, agreeable to the word of God, and according to the constitution of the, whole, of the Presbyterian Church in America, and that as such they are entitled to all encouragement, honor, and obedience in the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, man. Brother Parsons. Can, you can talk. And, and we are so thankful to that the Lord raises up for us each year, uh, both uh, deacons and elders, to, to shepherd and to, to serve his flock. And thank these men for uh, agreeing to take on a work that is so vital and to care for our people. Well, now, if you will turn with me uh, in your Bibles to Psalm 22. Or if you have a bulletin with an insert, you may also find it as an insert. If you don't have that, and you'll find a Bible that's in front of you, uh, you can get it somehow there. Psalm 22, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18. Well, this is um, Palm Sunday, as you already noticed. It's the day that we're commemorating Jesus entering Jerusalem. And last Sunday, we looked at uh, Psalm 121. We've been going through selected psalms uh, for the past uh, few weeks. And I noted that Psalm 121 was, was entitled a Song of Ascent. There's 15 of them that the pilgrims going to Jerusalem on feast days would sing these songs as they uh, go up through the hills to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus would have been one of those pilgrims, would have sung one of those, uh, song, would have sung all of them, but he would have had another psalm that would have always been on his mind, and it's the one we're looking at this morning. It's the most unique psalm of the Psalter. There are other psalms that have the, the same elements we'll see in here. There are the elements of lament, and then there'll be the elements of worship. But when it comes to lament, David, who is the author of this psalm, he's not shy at all in in most of his psalms, in complaining about uh, enemies or about his troubles. There is nothing unusual in a psalm about lamenting and about complaining. But in all those other psalms, they either specify, they'll even say it at the top, what the reason was, the scenario, or you can, you can get it through the psalm itself, and you can understand how it applies. Or the, 
design will be so general that you could make them apply to any scenario. That's, that's why the Psalms are so meaningful to us, is that we can read them and we can apply them to ourselves. This one, however, is different in its lament. It's also different and unique as what is called a messianic psalm. That's a psalm that when you read it, you can easily apply it to Jesus, to the Messiah. We looked at one like that, Psalm 2. And, uh, we, but what was about that psalm and all the others is you can read it and you can apply it to something else. So when I took us through that psalm, I regarded it as a coronation psalm for a king. You know, and that's how we interpreted it. And then only afterwards, we went to the New Testament and saw how the New Testament applied it to Jesus. Well, with this, we cannot apply it to anything else. We cannot apply it to any other scenario of, for lamenting. We cannot apply it to, to any scene in David's life or any other king. The only way that we can understand it and interpret it is at the cross. And so in this case, as we go through the psalm, we're going to be going back, back and forth to the cross to understand what is being said here. So with that in mind, look with me at verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Well, we go to Matthew 27, verses 45 to 46. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, let's try to get some kind of understanding as we can to what Jesus is experiencing here. How has God abandoned him? Well, the first one way to understand it is obvious. He's on a cross. God did not intervene to rescue Jesus from his enemies. The priests, the Pharisees, they got him. They made the arrest. They got him convicted. He's now up there on that cross being slowly executed. And furthermore, he's staying up there. There is no rescue. He's not undergoing a, a temporary trial and, and then God's going to bring him down from it. And this is going to be brought out later in our psalm when it refers to the mocking of his enemies. They're going to present a challenge to him. Let the Lord deliver him. And the Lord will not. And thirdly, there is the silence of God. In response to these cries of Jesus, there's no answer. And this, this speaking of, I, I cry by day and, and by night, is just a way in which he, he's just saying, he's trying to express this interminable agony that he is going through on that cross. And it's an agony that is not soothed in any manner. And then fourthly, 
And here, if we really do begin to grasp this, we will tremble before the mystery. Now let's remember the dialogue, who it's between, is between God the Father and God the Son. Well, actually, there's no dialogue, is there? There's the Son crying out, and the Father won't answer. Now think about this. You know, this is not you, it's not me, suffering and crying out for God, whom we know only by faith. You know, there was a time, you know, we're not eternal, there was a time that we did not exist. We had to, to grow from being an infant over years and just being able to develop a kind of a relationship with anybody, but especially God. Even then, we had to be born again to know God truly. And even still, I mean, our knowledge is limited. And we might speak of relating to God, but we relate to someone whom we do not see. And we might speak of talking to God, maybe even of hearing his voice. But typically what we mean is we, we feel it, we, we sense it in, a, in our minds. Well, not so with the Father and the Son. They are eternal. There has never been a time that they have not fully existed, that they have not fully had their bond together. Remember who they are. With the Holy Spirit, they are three persons. They are one substance in three persons. And so we can try, but we cannot fully fathom the depth of their bond, their unity, their intimacy, their love for one another. And yet here on the cross is this blood-curdling crying from God the Son to his Father who has turned away. Well, let's go on. Verses 3 to 5. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. It'd be good now for me to make a clarification as we're looking at a psalm such as this. Psalms of lament, this is a psalm of lament, are not psalms of bitterness. And what I mean by that is that the one who is lamenting has not cast off God, even as he is complaining. Rather, the psalmist, he's complaining to God precisely because God is his God, is, is his Lord. Okay? He's not a bitter man who, having experienced disappointment and, and sorrow, has just rejected, rejected belief in God, it will no longer live under him, no longer will have anything to do with him. The lamenting psalmist laments, something's wrong here in the relationship. God's not aiding him, at, at least not in the way that he expects the aid should be. But God is still God. He is still Yahweh, Jehovah, the covenant uh, God of Israel. And so, the lamenting psalms, they appeal to the true character of God. They, they haven't forgotten who he is, and they have not forgotten their history, his, his history with his people. God, as Jesus is saying here, is the Holy One enthroned in the praises and the worship of Israel. And as Israel's king, he's pointing out to God 
Your people trusted you to protect them, and you came through for them. You know, when Israel, and when the psalmist, whenever you read in Scripture, and it speaks of God rescuing, the central event for Israel is the Exodus. Okay, that's what they're always looking back to, looking at Jesus delivering them from slavery to Egypt and through that Red Sea. Americans, what do we look back to as our central event? It's, it's the American Revolution, isn't it? And we look back and we, we see our forefathers, and we see those who fought, and it's, it's our ancestors fought for their freedom. Okay? That's the key concept. We fought and we got our freedom. Well, the Israelites, when they look back to the, to the Exodus, they look back to when God fought. God won their freedom from slavery to Egypt. And it's not, though, personal liberty. That's not their key concept like it is ours. Rather, they were delivered so that they might become the people of God under his lordship, under the lordship of their holy God. And indeed, their first act of freedom, they go to Mount Sinai, and they are bound by covenant to their deliverer. So all of their history, you need to understand this, particularly as we go on, is seen in this light. If they have been defeated, taken over by enemies, well, that's because God did not fight for them. If they win victory over their enemies, well, that's because God did fight for them. Again, if they're defeated, that's because God was angry with them for their sin and their rebellion. But if they have repented and God hears their cries, then God gives them again. Victory comes to their aid. The history of Israel is always tied up with their relationship with their God. And with that in mind, let's go back to the cross. Jesus... He does not utter these verses that we've just looked at. But we know that he's been meditating on this psalm. I mean, just his very outcry, my God, my God, indicates that. And so what this psalm is doing is expressing his mindset there on the cross. He, even upon the cross, would be appealing to his God, acknowledging God's, his holiness, his, his righteousness, his trustworthiness, he pointing back to God's character, which he, by the way, has experienced firsthand, as he himself is God. Well, let's go on in verses 6 through 8. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So we go back to the anguish Jesus is experiencing around him. He's being scorned, despised, and and mocked. Let me read the episode from Matthew 27, 38 to 43. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. 
If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests, with the scribes and elders, mocked him, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Well, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Well, let's go on. Verses 9 to 11. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. In verses 3 to 5, Jesus had appealed to God as the covenant God of Israel. Well, now he's appealing to just his own personal relationship with his father. And let's recall here what's happening. Jesus has two complete natures. He has his divine nature, and he has his human nature. He left his glory in heaven. He took on our nature on earth. But even so, God has always been with him. And we can't fully understand and comprehend it. I mean, Jesus was conceived. He was born just like we are. And yet, he was not born in sin like we were. So there is never, ever a time in which there is this division or, or separation. And so, however he is growing, however he's growing in knowledge, he is always growing in knowledge and in a relationship with his fathers, much more intimate than ours. And he's appealing now to that relationship. Well, let's go on. Verse 12. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. And we see that. Jesus' enemies are around him, aren't they? They're like a, a pack who are circling their prey. And, it's, and just like a pack, when the, the prey is injured, they feel powerful now, these priests and, and scribes, and all the more they feel full of spite. Okay, let's go on. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Well, here now we're moving to the physical stress that Jesus is feeling from the crucifixion. I mean, he's hanging. His limbs are outstretched, and literally his bones probably are being pulled out of joint. His courage is melting. His heart, figuratively and even literally, is giving way under that stress. Now, a potsherd is just a broken piece of pottery. And it emphasizes, as noted here, about the tongue sticking to the jaws, the extreme dryness in his mouth. When Jesus will say on the cross, I thirst, that is an understatement. 
But I want you to note the last line here in verse 15. What it doesn't say. What it doesn't say is, they lay me in the dust of death. No, who lays him in the dust of death? You, God, lay me in the dust of death. Now let's recall what we have said about Israel's perspective. That whatever happens, happens in relationship to God. Well, that's what Jesus is acknowledging here. You know, this, he's on that cross, and though it may be enemies around him, the, the Romans have nailed him up there, and the, the religious leaders have, have arranged it to get him there, it's, it's God. It's God who is actually laying him in the dust of death. Now, that's a statement that you can see in two ways. It's one of accusation, and it's also of confidence. And there may be enemies all about him, and the end may be a better one. Nonetheless, he's still acknowledging it's the hand of his father. It's the hand of his father who is laying him down at the end. Let's go on. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Now, is that line in verse 16 that they have pierced my hands and feet? That's what forces us to the cross. Now, as I've said before, look, David in his Psalms has never been shy to complain about enemies, and he is very eloquently has to depict uh, the troubles in his life, but never piercing, and nothing but one's hands and feet being nailed adequately depicts what's taking place. And just note, crucifixion, this was a form of execution that took place centuries uh, later than when this psalm was written. We have to go to the cross. Well, he closes in verse 18 here. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, we all know this incident, and I'll read it to you from John 19. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So again, Psalm 22, this first half of it, this is the depiction of the crucifixion of Jesus. It is Jesus' personal psalm of lament when he is upon that cross. Now we're going to talk more about them, but I want us to consider two lessons that Jesus teaches us in this psalm. The first one is this. He teaches us that we may lament. We may cry out to God with our pain. We can even complain against him. 
I'm asked about this time to time, is it okay to be angry with God? And my typical reply is to just say, read the Psalms. David, the other psalmists, they have no qualms complaining to God and even saying to God, you're the one responsible for this. You know, our, our Judaic Christian religion is one that accepts pain as a reality. It allows us to suffer. That is, to, to openly feel our pain and to express it. We do not have to pretend to be happy in the Lord all the time. We're allowed to hurt. And we may grieve when we hurt. And because God is a personal God, he's not some, some force of the universe, we can take our grief to him. We can even take our anger to him. And he can handle it. He will handle it. Now, the second lesson might seem counterintuitive. It's this. It's the comfort of knowing the hand that afflicts. Now, let me, let me explain. Unlike us, first of all, Jesus knew the reason for his affliction. Okay? Even his father's abandonment. He's not crying out in, in puzzlement. He's not baffled by what's going on. Now, we typically are, aren't we? We don't know the purpose of our suffering, and, and we're trying to figure out, why is this happening to me? Well, even so, we can still know what Jesus knew. And what does Jesus tell us in our song? That God is holy. That God can be trusted. That in the end, we remain in God's hands. The hand that afflicts does so for a purpose, whether we can figure it out or not, but it's for a purpose that is ultimately for good. The hand that afflicts will in the end still be the hand that holds us, lays us down, and ushers us into the good presence of God. And I tell you, I'd rather be baffled by God's affliction than to think that I have been left in the hands of evildoers. So we may lament and we can take comfort in knowing who ultimately has us. But let's go now to that purpose of Jesus' affliction. Now, as I said, Jesus knew the reason for his affliction and even the reason why his father abandoned him. Psalm 22, what it does is it expresses for us the actual affliction, the grief that he's going through. Well, it's Isaiah 53 that teaches us what it accomplishes. Let me read to you verses 4 to 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The grief and sorrow that Jesus felt on the cross 
the physical pain of the, of the piercings and, and the hanging, that, that crushing load of pain and of, of mocking and, and of abandonment. That is the chastisement visited upon him to pay for our transgressions. You know, his mockers who were standing there around him, they esteemed him stricken, smitten, and afflicted. His very hanging on the cross. And it doesn't matter why he's hanging on the cross. To them, that was the sure sign to them that he was cursed by God. But Jesus hung there to take the penalty of the curse that was due us. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, if anyone should think that God is unfair to punish his son, well, then they do not understand what Jesus understood. Again, as Jesus told us in the psalm, he understood, he understood holiness. He understood the holiness of God. I mean, that was his own nature as God. He understood that holiness cannot abide sin. That righteousness cannot abide evil. That justice cannot abide injustice. Something has to be done. And he understood the heart of man, the wickedness of man. He understood clearly its wickedness. And even if, it's, if it can be covered over by what, you know, seemingly by good works and maybe having a good personality, a good disposition, he understood clearly total depravity, how we are infected with a thin disease, or more accurately, how we are just dead, plain dead in our trespasses. He understood that that debt of wickedness must be paid for if there's going to be reconciliation. That heart that is infected with sin must be cleansed if it is going to appear before God. And that we could not, we cannot do anything to make restitution. We cannot win our freedom. God must deliver us. And most importantly, most most incredibly, Jesus and God the Father possess such mercy and love to accomplish this, to satisfy justice and to save the sinner. And it's for such joy that Jesus bore the agony of the cross and the Father bore the agony of inflicting justice upon his Son, and parents understand that. Psalm 22 teaches us that the cross was not play-acting. Jesus suffered and he died. And we can, even in this psalm, we can but catch just, we catch a glimpse of his agony. But again, Isaiah 53 teaches us that his suffering, his death, these were not a lost cause, but they were instrumental in providing the mercy that we desperately need, and also providing at the same time the justice seeing that it was preserved so that God remains holy and righteous. It is there at the cross that we have a firm foundation, the refuge of the lost. And we give you praise, our God, for the firm foundation, for our salvation, the refuge for the lost. 
We thank you for the agony that our Lord Jesus experienced upon the cross that we, as much as we can understand and feel it, we still cannot plumb plumb the, the depths of it. We just humbly give you praise and thanks for this great mystery. We give this word of praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand, as we uh, sing this hymn, I really want you particularly to pay attention to the words of the hymn that we sing. Let's stand. Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> 